today on question period pledging more support. NATO leaders agreed that we must uh, and will provide further support to Ukraine. As Russia's war on Ukraine enters its second month, NATO agrees to expand military aid and renews a commitment for members to increase defense spending. Is Canada ready to reach a 2% GDP target? And what more should Canada do to help Ukraine? MPs join us in moments to debate. Then, let's make a deal. With so much instability around us, Canadians need stability. We're using our power to get help to people. The Liberals and NDP strike an agreement to keep Justin Trudeau's minority government in power for three more years. But is it a power grab? How will the government be held accountable? And what will the price tag be for the promised social programs? We'll speak to NDP leader Jagmeet Singh and then former NDP leader Tom Mulcair and former Conservative Cabinet Minister James Moore join us for analysis. Plus, path to healing. A table apology is absolutely required to advance the healing. A delegation of indigenous leaders meets with the Pope this week in Rome. When will Pope Francis come to Canada to apologize for the Catholic Church's role in residential institutions? And what other priorities should be put on the table? Former Assembly of First Nations Chief Perry Bellegarde and Chief Bobby Cameron will be here. I'm Joyce Napier. Let's go get some answers. Good morning. Evan Solomon is away today. It's now been more than one month since Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. As Ukraine pleads with the West for more weapons, NATO says it is deploying more troops and countries like Canada are pledging more sanctions. But still, the war rages on as Russian soldiers face a staunch Ukrainian resistance. CTV's chief international correspondent, Paul Workman, joins us from Lviv. Paul. Joyce, I think people here are happily digesting the impact of Joe Biden's trip to Poland. The fact that he called Vladimir Putin a butcher and used that off-the-cuff phrase, Putin cannot remain in power. Even if it's not clear exactly what he meant, they were strong words of support for Ukraine. With the war here, the invasion now in its second month, the new horror stories every day of people dying under siege. And of course, around the same time yesterday, Russia fired missiles at this city, Lviv, which is very close to the Polish border. I think the mayor here got it right when he said Russia was pointedly sending a big hello to Joe Biden next door. Hard to believe the timing of the attack was coincidental. So was Biden calling for regime change in Russia? The White House says no, but you can imagine the response in Moscow. Russian officials very quickly scoffed at Biden's language, which has become increasingly harsh and personal. Putin was elected by the people of Russia, said a spokesman, and the U.S. president should mind his own business. Joyce. That's CTV's Paul Workman reporting for us from Lviv. So what are the West's next steps to support Ukraine? At a special NATO summit on Thursday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky asked for more weapons. NATO allies agreed to send more resources, but sending in troops and implementing a no-fly zone remain a red line that NATO will not cross. NATO is also sending four new battle groups to Slovakia, Hungary, Romania and Bulgaria as a way to bolster its presence in Eastern Europe. As for Canada, Prime Minister Trudeau says his government is aiming to increase military spending. We continue to step up in our 
capabilities and our commitment uh, to NATO in Central and Eastern Europe and uh, elsewhere around the world. And we will continue to be increasing our defense spending. So how much more is Canada willing to increase its defense spending in the upcoming budget? And is there more Canada should do to help Ukraine? Let's find out. Joining me now are Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Rob Oliphant, Conservative MP Michael Barrett, and NDP Foreign Affairs critic Heather McPherson. Good morning to the three of you. Thanks for taking the time uh, to talk to us. Um, Michael Barrett, I, wa I want to start with you. Is it time for Canada to commit to that 2% of GDP target? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we were hoping to see uh, last week when uh, the Prime Minister was meeting with NATO. And that's what we're expecting to see uh, from the government when they announce their, uh, their budget in the coming weeks. So there's still time uh, for the government uh, to do that, to include that critical uh, 2%. We see now as uh, the Putin regime starts its uh, march across uh, Europe that um, we need to uh, honor our commitment um, to both the uh, global security uh, picture, but also to make sure that we're prepared um, to protect ourselves domestically here. So uh, it, it's high time to meet that 2% uh, defense uh, spending. So, Heather, your leader, Jagmeet Singh, does not support the 2% target. What is the NDP's position? And, and, you know, so how much should Canada be spending on defense in this next budget? Well, you know, Joyce, what we need to be spending on this uh, at this time on defense is to give the tools to the men and women in uniform so that they can do the job that we're asking them to do. You know, we have seen under under conservative and liberal governments the the decimation of funding for our defense. And it's really important to remember our defense, of course, is, is part of Canada's role in the world. But our defense is also search and rescue. Our defense is also, you know, during the second wave of this pandemic, when we when we asked our members of the military to go to seniors' homes to support our seniors during that second wave. You know, during during what we know will be increasing climate events, that's those are the, the, the times that we're asking our military to put their lives at risk, and we need to make sure that they have the tools that they need to to stay safe, that they have the materials that they need to, to do their job. We should be peacekeepers. And, and one last thing I want to point out, too, is that we need to tie it to our humanitarian aid. You know, we can't be looking at defense and saying that it's not equally as important that we are investing in diplomacy, investing in humanitarian aid, and those things should be tied together. If, if we are seeing in, um, you know, further investment in the military, which I think is vitally needed, there needs to be further investment in humanitarian but and diplomacy. But, but your leader is not supporting the 2%. Uh, the 2% is an arbitrary number. It's not, you know, that is, that, that is not what we're saying. The NDP have always said the military requires the tools and the material that they need to do the job that Canadians are asking them to do. We're asking them to risk their lives. We're asking them to put themselves and their families on the line. We need to give them the tools to do that work. So, uh, Rob Oliphant, is that, you know, 2% just aspirational that, that NATO uh, is asking its members to reach, uh, you know, the Prime Minister hinted at increasing defense spending. Will Canada be committed to that NATO target of 2% of GDP? Can it be done in one shot? Well, I'm not, I'm not going to make any news about the budget this morning. Uh, sorry, Joyce. Uh, what I am going to say is that over the last four weeks, I have, uh, I've been learning a lot, and I think Canadians have woken up. I think, I think we're very aware now of the precarious nature of security in our world. 
uh, we, we were perhaps lulled into a, a sense of uh, safety or security. And uh, Putin and his uh, outrageous attack on civilians, uh, on, on infrastructure, on people in uh, Ukraine has, has caused us to, to, to stop and look. But uh, right now, I think Canadians are having a discussion. Uh, they're looking at um, what should be in this budget. Uh, they're looking at supports that are domestic. They're looking at international engagement, uh, humanitarian, diplomatic, defense. And that's the discussion Canadians should be having. And I'm glad we're having it. And it's, uh, it's complex and it's interesting. And it's a little scary. I think Canadians, uh, I, you know, I read the poll out in CTD uh, last week, and Canadians are divided, uh, almost half and half, thinking they want to raise taxes or not raise taxes to, uh, to provide military spending. So we have to have a good adult conversation uh, about where Canada's place in the world is and how it should be. You know, Michael Barrett, we're also having a hard time recruiting uh, people uh, in the Canadian Armed Forces, uh, the equipment is sometimes so old it can't even be fixed. And, you know, is Canada really committed to procuring more equipment for Ukraine? Because we have nothing left in our stockpile that we can give. And that's what Anita Anand, the defense minister, said. So is this, you know, a failure of all previous governments? Am I being too harsh? Is it that the last five weeks have taught us that maybe we should look at defense in a very new way now. You know, I, I think that we have an opportunity and uh, we've seen over the last four weeks uh, the new global reality that we're facing. And it's, of course, it's absolutely true that the Canadian Forces members uh, don't have enough of and the right kit to do their jobs. That's, um, that's a fact. And so um, we, the time to spend the money is right now and not in the, in the next half of this decade. Uh, I think that there's an awful lot of goodwill for us to get this done. And so uh, I think that, um, that, that Parliament uh, should take advantage of that and that we should talk to Canadians about the reality. A lot of folks don't know our Canadian Forces members uh, uh, do a lot with very little. And, and I can tell you based on firsthand experience that, um, that our men and women in uniform, um, they, they effectively perform miracles with the, with the tools that we give them. And uh, the, the time for that has passed. It's time to renew our commitment to the Canadian Forces. It'll go a long way uh, for recruiting, but also for retention. So, uh, Rob Oliphant, before we go, you know, there's some pricey items, you know, coming up in this, in this budget. Defense spending, dental care uh, programs, uh, pharmacare. And the Liberals just tabled a bill uh, this past week to give provinces $2 billion to relieve uh, pandemic surgery backlogs. So how will Canadians pay for this? Well, this is the adult conversation we have to have. You know, Joyce, I've been on the opposition side. It's quite easy. Uh, there is no magic wand. Uh, government is going to have to make some hard decisions, and Canadians have to engage in this conversation. Um, we're going to have to figure out how do we pay the price tag of safety and security in our world, but how do we also pay the price tag of building a world that is peaceful? How do we also uh, pay the price tag of ensuring that Canadians don't get left behind here? How do we make sure that children have the best opportunity with a Canada Child Benefit and with uh, a, a medical system that works for all Canadians and a, an inclusive uh, situation that makes sure we're doing reconciliation, that makes sure we have clean water on, on, uh, uh, in, in, in Indigenous communities? That's what we have to do. It's not, there's no magic wand. There's no endless uh, source of money. The Canadian taxpayer has absolutely every right and responsibility to be engaged in this conversation. So I would hope that all parties are reaching out beyond their own base to say, folks, how do we do this? Heather McPherson, Rob Oliphant, Michael Barrett, 
Thanks for spending this time with us. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having me. When we come back, friend or foe, the Liberals and NDP strike a deal that will keep Prime Minister Trudeau in power for three more years. Is this a Liberal power grab or a move to help Canadians? NDP leader Jagmeet Singh joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. It's the Parliament Hill edition of Let's Make a Deal. In a major move, the Liberals and NDP have brokered a confidence agreement. The NDP will support Prime Minister Trudeau and his government until June 2025 in exchange for support on several NDP priorities. So, what will this mean for Canadians? Among the share priorities, a new dental care program for low-income Canadians that would start with kids under 12 in 2022 and later expand. Passing a Canada Pharmacare Act by the end of 2023, although details are vague and there is no price tag. And extending the Rapid Housing Initiative for an additional year. The deal comes six months after Canadians handed the Prime Minister another minority government. Under the agreement, the Liberals are pledging stability. The NDP are touting the deal as a way to help Canadians while the Conservatives are calling it a power grab by Trudeau. He has deceived Canadians, and I, I think there, there's got to be a lot of concern, not just with Canadians, but with Liberal voters themselves. Uh, what, what lengths will this man go to to cling to power? So can Canadians have confidence the federal government will still be held accountable? What would the NDP's red line be for the deal to fall through? And can the country afford to pay for these new commitments? And how much will they cost? Let's find out. And joining me now is NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Welcome to Question Period. Good to have you in studio. Um, so I, I want to go back to the two last election campaigns, 2019-2021. You ran a, a pretty effectively uh, on, on, on saying, you know, you can't trust Justin Trudeau. Um, that was, you know, sort of a bit of a mantra for you. And... and can you trust him now? Well, the difference now is we've got it in writing. And the beauty is what we fought to do, we've used our power to get help to people, and then we got that help to people guaranteed in writing. And so we know what it is, journalists know what it is, the public has access to this document, and we can use that to hold the government to account to actually deliver the help that people need. Because we know it's been a tough two years, and people need help, and we're going to do that. Do you have a red line? Because it's a, it's a long list, and it's a, it's a costly long list that you have in that document. Uh, what's your red line? Well, we've got a number of checkpoints along the way. So I would look at it as the first test is going to be the budget. And in the budget, we're expecting the first phase of the dental care program so that kids can get their teeth fixed. The first phase will be every child under 12 who needs it most, who doesn't have coverage, will be covered. And that should happen in this, in this year, 2022. So we expect that to be shown in the budget, the funding for that. We also have laid out some ways to pay for this. And one of those is actually a liberal promise, something that we also agree, that the wealthiest should pay their fair share. And one of those groups is big, ban big banks and insurance companies. And we want them to pay a surtax on their excess profits, something that the liberals ran on. And we've included that into the agreement to say, you know that we want to tax the super rich. Here's one way to do it. Let's make that happen as well to pay for some of this. Okay, so when you spoke to Justin Trudeau, because you negotiated this probably on and off, did you ever talk about how much this would cost? 
Yeah, we laid out the cost for the dental care program in its entirety in our campaign. So the entirety of the program would be $4 billion in the first year because the uh, parliamentary budget office anticipated a lot of people who didn't yes. get their teeth fixed might then take up the program quickly and then it would stabilize at about a billion. Because the first phase, and we're phasing this in in different stages, is for children under 12, it's obviously not going to be the full four billion, uh, so it'll be much less than that. We figure that at, at it will be covered entirely, the full program, by even one of the measures of taxing the banks that surtax on excess profits would cover the program. So what do you say to your critics that you are, you know, propping up Justin Trudeau? Because, you know, the stability theory that you guys talked about is, is, is kind of rich. Because if I, my memory serves me well, and it does, it was Justin Trudeau who called this election. It wasn't <laughs> not a non-confidence vote. So what stability are we going after here? Well, it's certainly more stability than the uncertainty of each vote being vote to vote and each vote being a potential confidence motion. This has an agreement where both the government is com committing to going to, to governing to 2025, and we're saying we are prepared to work until 2025. So both parties are saying that we want to govern, and what we're saying is let's get help to people. You talked about the war, and we know that there is going to be an increase in defense spending. Uh, there's going to have to be. The, the Prime Minister hinted at it, the Defence Minister hinted at it, so there's going to be that, and those are big that's a big ticket item, that's a lot of billion dollars. Your programs, let's go to Pharmacare, for instance, that's also a big ticket item. So is it fair to say what the Conservatives are saying, that there are tax increases in Canadians' futures? Well, if, you're, if you mean uh, you're super wealthy and you're a big bank or a big insurance company, then yes, there's going to be increases for the super wealthy. But there's not going to be, and expressly, there's not going to be any pressure put on everyday families, working class families. Uh, those are people that have already paid their fair share. So would you be, for instance, in favor of eliminating the capital gains uh, tax on principal residences? Not principal. Uh, but we've said that on additional capital gains that we should bring it, the rate back to what it was um, not too long ago, about 10 or 15 years ago, that that rate uh, was at a, at a higher rate, not for principal residences. That should be exempt as we maintain that position. But for other uh, capital gains, we've looked at that. That's been our, in our campaign both in 2019 and 2021. We've looked at a, a wealth tax on the super wealthy. Uh, we've looked at making sure companies like Amazon pay their fair share. What a wealth tax on, on the super wealthy. You know, you talk about that, I and mean, it sounds really good, but what does that yield? Uh, significant amounts of revenue. We actually but had the... The PBO, the Parliamentary Budget Officer, says that actually it doesn't. Well, they say that it could raise a lot of revenue, but uh, because it's not been done before, they gave it uh, an unpredictability, which is fair. I mean, it's whenever you do something big and something new, it's hard to predict. I want to go to this, uh, to your PharmaCare program, because... You, you make a very compelling argument about this uh, senior who has to choose between medicine uh, and food. That's, a, that's, that's pretty compelling. But your proposal and the, and, the, and the Liberals' proposal doesn't help your senior until after 2025. So can it not be targeted? 
Well, the idea of phasing in programs is something I, I absolutely agree with. But this one is not it. phasing in. The well, dental is, but not pharmacare. Well, with pharmacare, what we're proposing is we bring in a pharmacare act with, by next year. And that pharmacare act lays out the same principles of the Canada Health Act. That the program should be universal, it should be public, Why should it should it be, be the benefit for all people. If most well, people already have it. Well, the reality is, is that at some point in time, most people did have it, but more and more we're seeing people have gig employment, they do not have benefits, benefits are becoming a thing of the past. A lot of people work contract work, a lot of people are independent workers. And so in fact, more and more people don't have actually any coverage at all. And what we've realized when we look at the mixed system, which is what the Liberals are proposing, we have that in Quebec. And while Quebec was ahead of its time in having a public and private system combined, which, thought, which we thought would cover the people that fell through the cracks, what's happened is it's the most expensive way to actually deliver medication in the world. I, I just want a last point here because there is a war uh, going on in Europe. Um, the Prime Minister this week was meeting with his NATO allies, and it's clear that Canada needs to do more and increase the defense, its defense budget. We don't know. We have a, a, a budget coming up in a few weeks. Would you back a budget where there would be a significant increase in defense spending, which is what the other countries are doing, or most of the other NATO countries are doing in Canada, is being pressured to do? Well, the pressure that's being applied right now is to get to 2%. We think that that's an arbitrary number, and we don't support that number. But when it comes to increasing supports, we know that our forces, our armed forces, Canadian armed forces, are being required or being told to do certain work, and they don't have the equipment to do it. So they should have the equipment, and that's going to require filling in a gap where they, we need to fund them more to be able to have the equipment to do the work that we ask them to do. We support that. I've long supported that. We also know that we're living in a scarier world, and, and people are clearly feeling less, scared, uh, less secure, and we need to invest to make sure people feel more secure. And so that's going to mean uh, some increase. Uh, we do not believe that 2% is appropriate. So you would not be in favor of, of, of in this budget, of an increase up to 2% of that's GDP right. for defense spending. So what would you be in favor of? 1.7%? Because right now it's 1.39%, so shy of 1.4%. What, what would you back? Well, we know that there would be a need for some increase. Uh, we'll look at that very carefully, have some discussions about that. Uh, in the agreement, a part of our agreement is that we're going to have uh, close consultations and discussions about what's going to happen next. So you will have a big say in this next budget. You've got, you've got what, a veto power, you figure? I don't know if there's a veto power, but we certainly have uh, an ability to have input, and we're going to make sure that we're doing everything we can to make sure the budget reflects the needs of Canadians. Jagmeet Singh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. <laughs> Thanks so much. Coming up, Path to Healing. Canadian Indigenous leaders meet with the Pope this week to address the Catholic Church's role in residential schools. How soon could the Pope visit Canada to make an apology? Former Assembly of First Nations National Chief Perry Bellegarde and Chief Bobby Cameron join us next. Stay right here with Question Period. It's a historic apology, centuries in the making. A delegation of Indigenous leaders will be meeting the Pope in Vatican City throughout this week to make the case for a papal apology to be made here in Canada for the Church's role in the residential school system. Pressure has mounted against the Church after last year's discovery of 215 unmarked graves at the Kamloops Residential School in British Columbia. 
Since then, hundreds of remains of indigenous children have been found at sites across the country. According to the 2015 Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, the system took more than 150,000 indigenous children from their families and subjected them to all matter of abuses, including malnutrition and sexual assault. So, will the Catholic Church give in to the delegation's specific demands? What significance will this apology have on reconciliation in this country? And how will it be received by indigenous communities? Let's find out. And joining me now are former Assembly of First Nations National Chief Perry Bellegarde and Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations Chief Bobby Cameron, who joins us from Treaty 6 territory, Wichkin Lake First Nation. Gentlemen, happy Sunday morning. Thanks for being there. It's good to see you. Um, Perry Bellegarde, I want to start with you because mm -hmm. this is... Um, Call to action number 58 yep. uh, from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. This is a papal apology in Canada. It took a long time to get here. Walk us through the steps. Well, good morning, Joyce. And uh, uh, call to action number 58. You know, the Chiefs of Canada said they've endorsed all 94 calls to action. Number 58 calls for a papal apology here in Canada. And we started working on that back in 2015 uh, to try to secure the meeting in Rome with His Holiness. And uh, I'm glad to see it happening now. But we had to build relationships with the, with the Catholic bishops here in Canada. We had to build relationships with the Holy See. We had to build relationships with the Papal Nuncio, uh, former Luigi, uh, Nuncio Luigi Bonazzi. And it, it took some time, but I'm really glad to see that the meeting uh, with His uh, Holiness is happening in the Vatican coming up. Chief Cameron, you know, you have said that if the church refuses to hand over residential school archive documents, mm -hmm. if the church doesn't do this, that you will renounce your religion. How confident are you that the church will follow through on those demands? Well, judging by the recent comments and decisions and all the meetings that have been going on, and we want to thank all the survivors, the descendants, the families, the leadership right across the country for the lobbying efforts and being vocal on this particular important item. So we feel confident that's going to happen. Uh, ultimately, getting every single piece of pertinent information, pertinent I say, because it has to boil down to every single detail being offered directly to our survivors and the communities. So until that happens, you know, we'll continue to be cautious and aware. And, and Perry Belgard, how difficult will it be to get all these 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 documents from the Vatican archives? Uh, in your conversations over the seven years that it took to get to this meeting, did you feel that the Vatican was willing to give you the information on these schools, the role of the Catholic Church in these uh, institutions? Well, Joyce, I think no matter how difficult or hard it is, it's got to happen. You talk about uh, reconciliation, you talk about healing. You know, there were 130 residential schools in Canada, and the Roman Catholic Church was the church that administered most of those, those residential schools here. So they have a moral obligation and a moral duty to do all they can, yes, to apologize, but as well provide access to those records that'll help identify some of those, those children that have been lost or that were killed, you know, in the grave sites that have been found. So they have an obligation, no matter how difficult it is, to make it easy for people to have access to those records. 
Now, Chief Car Cameron, but how do you go from just a symbolic apology to something more meaningful? Because saying I'm sorry is, 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 is a, a good step, but not enough uh, for survivors, for the <clears throat> families, and for your communities. Well, it's a start for sure, and we'd like to say this on behalf of our Federation, that these archives and all these records that are still yet to be handed over to survivors and their families, you must have First Nation inclusion from beginning to end. And what I mean by that is this. For all of these records, wherever they are, you have to have the survivors right there, front and center when these records are being distributed and discovered and pulled out of these files, wherever they may be uh, collecting dust. You have to have the survivors right right at the ground level zero. Perry Belgard, do we know where these documents are? Do you, do you have any certainty from Vatican officials, whether here or in Rome, that you will have access to these archives, to these documents that will tell you the story? And what if they don't hand them over? Well, that's another thing. I think they've got to start the process and start working with the survivors and the families and the different organizations to begin that process of working together to have access to those documents. Um, it, and it hasn't been tried uh, wholly before, so it's got to begin. And I think this is a great opportunity now to build on that work going forward. You know, we've discovered how many grave sites, unmarked graves, and it's just the tipping of the iceberg, the discovery of these unmarked graves, these little ones. It's like they're speaking to everybody and waking everybody up. This was a genocide of our people. And so the churches have that moral obligation do the honorable thing to make sure that when these records are asked for, that everything is done to make them accessible. And that's a big part of restitution. That's a big part of reconciliation that will help with the healing going forward. There's no question. Chief Cameron, what does that mean for your community, for the survivors and their families in your community? They must be watching this very carefully. I know that there's some survivors that will be in Rome with the delegation. What have they told you and what is this, you know, how closely and what does this mean to them? Well, it's all part of the healing journey and this is part of that healing journey in getting getting the apology but also action after this apology the pope coming to one of our residential school sites there is still discussion out there that there will be a lawsuit on genocide there are still many residential school survivors who have been ignored who have missed the compensation payouts there are still many many that have unsettled business and Many survivors are saying, let's reopen this again. And we will be following this story next week. Perry Belgard and Chief Cameron, thanks for joining us. Thanks, thanks for the opportunity. After the break, political shakeup. What does the new Liberal NDP partnership mean for Canada's political landscape? And which party will come out as the big winner? Former NDP leader Tom Mulcair and former Conservative Cabinet Minister James Moore join us next. Stay right here with Question Period. One deal is now setting up the next three years on Parliament Hill. The federal NDP have agreed to support the Trudeau Liberals until 2025 in exchange for several NDP priorities. But these types of moves, while rare, are not new. Back in December 2008, the Liberals and NDP signed a coalition agreement with written support from the Bloc Québécois. 
But quickly after, then-liberal leader Stéphane Dion stepped down amid growing pressure, and the deal ultimately fell through. Most recently, the B.C. NDP and Green Party signed a confidence and supply deal following a tight provincial election in 2017, with the NDP going on to form a minority government. So which party wins or loses in this deal? And could the new alliance deepen political divisions? And joining me now are former NDP leader and CTV political commentator Tom Mulcair and former Conservative Cabinet Minister James Moore. Gentlemen, welcome to Question Period. Lovely to have you on a Sunday morning. Uh, Tom, let, let me start with you. Um, who is the biggest winner in this, in this agreement that we, we saw this week? And does this, do you think, weaken the NDP going forward? This is a real political coup by Justin Trudeau. He didn't like the result of the last election where he was handed his second consecutive uh, minority government. So he decided to go out and buy himself a majority. So he claims that he has this deal. They've read simultaneous press releases. The public has not had a chance to actually see the signed deal so far. But at the base of it, Mr. Trudeau is saying, I'm going to do some of the things that Mr. Singh has had in his program. We're going to pay for them. And in return... I get to govern until October 2025. That's buying yourself a majority. If you actually look at the text of those simultaneously released statements, it's quite interesting because, Joyce, almost everything is conditional. Almost everything is aspirational. There are very few hard commitments. And it's going to be interesting to see whether Mr. Singh can turn those vague statements into hard commitments. So, James Moore, very aspirational and, you know, no... Um no financial, no, we don't know how much this is going to cost taxpayers. We have, you know, no idea um, now that we know that there should be an increase in the defense budget. Um, the conservatives are calling it a socialist coalition and stuff like that. Is this a socialist coalition? Well, it's not a capitalist social <laughs> coalition. So, look, you know, everything here points towards bigger, uh, you know, bigger social spending. No focus on the economy or economic growth whatsoever. I agree with Tom's analysis that it's a it's a win in the short term for Justin Trudeau. It provides him some domestic uh, political stability uh, through this year's budget anyway. Through next year's budget, probably. The caveat, though, over whether or not it's a, it's a winner for Justin Trudeau, frankly, in my view, is whether or not he plans on seeking re-election. If he is planning on seeking re-election next time, then I think he will have he will burden himself with the reputation now of being somebody who is more interested in spending government largesse rather than creating wealth for Canadians and building a stronger economy. So it opens a broad path in the middle for conservatives to focus on the economy and focus on issues that have real anxiety for Canadians, such as cost of living, rising housing prices, the inability to even get into the housing market at all, the, the ability to save for retirement. So a broad sweep of economic issues becomes center stage and a real opportunity for the Conservatives to sink their teeth into because of the, the longstanding reputation of Justin Trudeau and New Democrats broadly of, of economic mismanagement. Let's not forget there is a leadership race going on uh, in the Conservative Party, fascinating uh, one actually, and probably, you know, for the identity of this party ultimately. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll go first to you, Tom. How will this impact that race? And are, are those people who thought that maybe there would be an election next year and uh, they could get into that job or will maybe have to wait till 2025? How does it impact the race, which is getting pretty crowded? Well, that's not what Jean Charest was banking on, to go straight to that. I mean, he thought he would be able to show up, perhaps win this race, and then have an election six months later 
and let the chips fall where they may. Now, without a seat in Parliament, he'd be wandering around the hallways like Banquo's ghost. He'd have no ability to participate in debates. It would go on for over three years. And it's a really different story from what he was hoping to see. With regard to Pierre Poilier, he would get a chance to settle down, show who he is, change his tone, one would hope, and try to convince Canadians that he has the stuff and the makings of a good prime minister. There are a couple of other people in play, including Pat Patrick Browner, who are worth watching. But I think that overall, we're going to see a race that starts to coalesce around those two. But the decision by the Liberals will severely affect Jean Charest's willingness to go through this for several years. He turned 64 in, in June, and that's going to be a really big difference from what he was expecting. James Moore, I mean, it is a very important race because, you know, after 10 years of Justin Trudeau, people will probably be looking at the Conservative Party a lot more carefully. Um, how do you see this? Is, this? is this good for this race? Is this good for the next Conservative leader that he or she will have this much time? Or do you think it's going to discourage people like Jean Charest? Uh, well, look, I, I think it's good for the party. The, the conversation in the early days of the conservative leadership campaign has been, what kind of a conservative are you? And I don't think everyday voters, frankly, particularly care. Conservative activists might care, but the general public does not. And so when you're looking at now going to 2025, the next election campaign is likely going to be a change election. No prime minister has ever won four mandates in a row in Canadian history. Ten years is a long time to govern. He will now have, Justin Trudeau will now have effectively have had two majority mandates, and there's no excuses. No excuses with two majority mandates and 10 years in government to say, well, we were going to do it, but if you give us a fourth mandate, we'll actually really get serious about it. The opportunity for a change election is in front of So the conversation shifts from what kind of a conservative are you to what kind of country do we want to be? And that is actually the plane on which real, true national parties of consequence and historic meaning should have their debates and their, and their conversations about fascinating you know that is actually fascinating I know that there's many other things happening and the sort of happening in the background but that is one important race Tom Mulcair James Moore thanks for spending the time with us this morning thank you when we come back money 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 NATO renews a pledge for members to spend more on defense is it time for Canada to reach the target of 2% of GDP Former Defense and Foreign Affairs Minister Peter McKay joins us next on The Scrum. Stay right here with Question Period. Is it time for Canada to finally fulfill its defense spending commitments? The war in Ukraine has forced the Defense Alliance, NATO, to rethink its strategy and the commitments of its member nations, including defense spending. It's a new reality, it's a, it's, a, it's a new normal, and NATO is responding for the long term. In response, Prime Minister Trudeau said that Canada intends to increase its defence spending, but gave few details. We have a budgetary process underway right now. Uh, we have a NATO meeting, a further NATO meeting in uh, Spain uh, in the coming months. Uh, those are all things that are ongoing. So what does this new security environment mean for Canada's defense and how much should Canada boost its defense spending? And to answer all that, the Scrum is here. Bob Fife is the Globe and Mail's Ottawa bureau chief. Tonda McCharles is a parliamentary reporter with the Toronto Star. And our special guest is former defense and foreign affairs minister Peter McKay. Good morning to the three of you. Lovely to have you on uh, question period. 
Uh, Peter McKay, I, I want to start with you because the Prime Minister gave no details on his government's plan to increase defense spending, but hinting uh, that there would be some increase. Is it time, you know, for Canada to go straight to 2% of GDP, um, you know, as, the, as NATO wants the Allies to go to? And how difficult is that? It will take time. And as you said, we're in a completely different world. Two things, of course, come to mind. Coming out of a pandemic and massive spending that has happened already that has put Canada deep in debt and, and deficit. And the fact, of course, that there is pressing concern because of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia and the fact that NATO is making even louder noises demanding that countries like Canada, who are near the bottom, reach that 2% threshold. But it will take time. So, you know, Bob, you know, how realistic really is it for Canada to reach that NATO target of 2%? And the Prime Minister is under pressure to increase it. Do you really see this going straight to 2% or, like Peter McKay is saying, it's going to be a slow process? Well, the Defence Minister, Anita Anand, had said that she's got aggressive proposals before Cabinet for the budget. One of those options, obviously, is to increase our, our defence spending from 1.39% to 2%. But I don't think that's realistic. I think what we will see initially in, uh, in the first uh, tranche of spending will be uh, uh, about $4 billion uh, devoted to upgrading NORAD. Our uh, early warning defense system is 40 years old. There hasn't been any upgrades. What we need to do is have ground-based radar. We need to have underwater surveillance and radar. And we need space base as well as drones. That is probably going to be the more realistic uh, uh, the spending that we're going to see initially. But Tonda, you know, NATO Secretary General said this past week that the alliance has to reset to face a new security reality. Uh, what does this reset look like for Canada when we're having a hard time recruiting uh, people to join the Canadian Armed Forces? Yeah, it's a huge challenge. And I mean, Peter McKay would know this from his time at that portfolio. It's a huge challenge to recruit people into the forces when they're at a time when they want to raise the number and diversity, uh, number of women, the diversity among the forces. But it's, it's an even bigger challenge right now because the threat is suddenly very real. Canada is being called upon by its allies, not just as we saw in the last five years during the Trump administration by the U.S., but by all its NATO allies to kick in more spending. I think we have to take the signals from uh, the minister, Anita Anand, that they will pour money into uh, NORAD's mo modernization and perhaps the accelerated spending that the prime minister committed to this week at NATO is really accelerating the spending they'd already committed to. I think that the NDP Liberal Pact that was reached this past week complicates matters uh, inevitably for Minister Freeland and the government because now they've got a whole bunch of social spending coming down the pike as well. Also, so to, to Tonda's point, Peter McKay, so we spoke to Jagmeet Singh who said he would not back a 2% increase. And as Tonda says, you know, those are big ticket items that they have in their supply and confidence agreement uh, struck this, this past week. How do you... How do you compose with all these elements, having to increase social spending and having this, this pressure to increase defense spending? Well, very carefully. And uh, the cracks perhaps are already showing in, in the coalition with the NDP. But I agree with everything that, uh, that Tonda and Bob have said in terms of the priority. It's not only coming 
externally, but I believe it's coming internally as well. Canadians expect more. Uh, we are exposed in the Arctic. Bob's point about needing to upgrade the Northern Warning System, but it also includes reclaiming landing strips, getting proper equipment there. Our shipbuilding uh, process is still uh, quite far from, from being able to enable a uh, replacement for the entire fleet. And we are going to need uh, to invest in those fighter aircraft. And I suspect, uh, as a result of recent developments, a lot more effort on cyber protection and deployability. Bob, what are you looking for in, in that next budget? Because it really is going to be for the Prime Minister uh, again to, to satisfy the NDP and also not to look um, sort of like the, 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 the country that goes out for dinner and, and never brings out their credit card. Uh, yeah, look, I mean, this budget, uh, at least a, a few weeks ago, was going to be around the issue of affordability and, and housing. Uh, the business community was hoping to see some measures to provide economic growth. I, probably that's not going to happen, uh, particularly after this deal with the NDP. Um, and in terms of defense spending, they're going to make, we're going to have to watch this very carefully, Joyce, as, as journalists, because there's going to be a lot of smoke and mirrors. I mean, for example, there's still $12 billion that they promised to spend on the military that they haven't done. But one thing this government could do, and I think the, I would like to see the opposition parties if they would support them, we've got to start buying more stuff off the shelf. This takes too long to try to get ships and planes and whatnot. We just got to say, okay, we need this equipment. Let's go and buy it. So, so Tond, I want to go back to that budget. And Anand used to be the procurement minister. Do you see our system that has been slow forever changing and becoming a more let's buy it now kind of system? Well, look, if anyone can accelerate some of that spending, I think it is Minister Anand because of her previous experience at procurement and now being in charge of defense. Look, Right now, Canada is 25th of some 29 members of the NATO alliance in terms of our spending as a percentage of our GDP. That's ridiculous for a, a G7 country. And I think that if the government is going to live up to the talk that the prime minister has been using on the world stage for the last several weeks, uh, it's time to back that with some action and some real dollars. Peter McKay, Tonda McCharles, Bob Fife, thanks so much for being there and sharing your thoughts with us. Pleasure. And that's question period for this week. Thank you for spending your Sunday morning with us. Enjoy the rest of your day. And Evan Solomon will be back right here in seven short days.